From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Congressman and Republican State Party Chair Ken Buck thinks most people will have one question when they vote. Who is best prepared to bring the economy back from this pandemic? His answer, President Trump, naturally, will explore his thinking and get Buck's view of mail-in voting. Then, why black women don't get their green. That's the tagline of the new podcast, In the Gap, about black women's pay. It's important to step back and see what your fears are around why you have not negotiated in the past, around why you may not even feel the right to negotiate. And later, Colorado folk musician Jamie Stone plugs in for his new album. Fly west, change skies, out on the west. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Republican National Convention's first order of business this week was to nominate President Donald Trump for a second term. Colorado Republican Party Chair Ken Buck made this state's vote official. The great state of Colorado, home of U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, headquarters to the Bureau of Land Management and the United States Space Command, proudly cast all 37 votes to keep America great again for President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. Buck, who's also a Republican congressman from northern Colorado, was at the convention in Charlotte, North Carolina Monday, then returned to Colorado. We caught up with him as he drove home from a congressional event on the Eastern Plains. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate it. In your roll call speech, you praised the president for the economy, the tax cuts, judicial picks. You also mentioned COVID-19. Quote, they've protected us from a worldwide pandemic. Right now, the U.S. ranks among the highest in the world in cases and death per capita. So how do you, how do you square that? Well, I think the president's done a great job, and I, I think the governors have done the very best that they can. It's very difficult to point the finger any one place on uh, a worldwide pandemic. I think the Chinese didn't provide good information at a time when they could have saved a lot of lives throughout the world. But I do think we have an excellent health care system, and, and I think the president did his very best to make sure that Americans were, were protected during that time period. Johns Hopkins puts the U.S. fourth worldwide when it comes to deaths per 100,000 people. So you, you look at that and you compare us to other nations, and there's clearly a difference. There is, and there's clearly a difference in America in terms of uh, our freedoms and the you know, if you're living in China and the government tells you to, to do something, you're uh, you're going to do it. There is a, a different culture in a lot of countries and a different, uh, really, knowledge of disease and, and protection from disease. I think a lot of Americans object strongly to wearing a mask, and that uh, is clearly one way that we can reduce the spread of this disease. One American who was loath to wear a mask for a long time was the president. Was he mistaken? No, I don't think he was. I think that in the settings where you saw him, uh, he has been responsible. And I think that the president clearly gave Dr. Fauci the podium and and allowed him to explain the necessity for wearing masks and social distancing and, and other precautions. Let's talk about the convention and the fall election. National polls show Democrat Joe Biden ahead of the president right now. What's the single most important message that President Trump needs to get across to the public this week, the week of the convention? 
I think the question that will be on most voters' minds when it comes time to cast their ballot in October, uh, early November, is who is best prepared to bring the economy back from this pandemic. And I think the president has demonstrated in his first three years and two months in office that he um, is well-suited to managing the economy and, and to creating a robust economy with, with great economic growth for all. And I think that voters will ultimately choose President Trump because of uh, that ability. Will they do so in Colorado, though? Uh, President Trump lost here four years ago. We know that the biggest blocks of voters now in this state are unaffiliated and Democrats. Tell it to me straight. Do you think he can win Colorado, which would be a real reversal from four years ago? So John McCain lost Colorado by around nine points. Mitt Romney lost by about seven points. Donald Trump lost by about four and a half points. And I think that four and a half points can be made up in, in the four years that we have passed. I don't think it's easy, but if you look at the resources that the Republicans are uh, spending here in Colorado, uh, there are tremendous resources that uh, the Trump campaign is uh, putting to good use in Colorado. And I think, frankly, the, the Democrats take Colorado for granted to a certain extent. Congressman, I got an email from the Trump campaign this week. I'm on both presidential campaigns' email lists. And, <laughs> That's great. But the headline of this particular email was Patriots Against Socialists. Do you agree that Democrats or anyone who doesn't support Trump is not a patriot? A lot of the headlines I've gotten from the Trump campaign seem to pit one America against another, and do seem to show two Americas in his mind. And did you tune in at all to the Democrat National Convention? Did you not see two Americas being portrayed in, in that convention? The answer to the first part of your question, I don't believe that Democrats are less patriotic than Republicans. I do believe that some of the anarchists that are rioting now that are to the left of center are misguided and, and engaging in criminal conduct, but I don't attribute that to the Democrat Party. And I, I believe that my friends in Congress who are Democrats are every bit as patriotic as I am. And so I don't see that. But I do think that socialism is a failed economic policy. And, and I believe that we should not be moving in more centralized control of, of our economy. It is a mistake. I'd love to spend just a moment talking to you about that word socialism, because it's used a lot this election year, and wanting to see where on the spectrum you fall with socialism or social programs. I mean, if you look at the military, right, that's taxpayers paying into something and everyone's protected. And, you know, Medicare and, heck, the Hoover Dam. So can you be more precise when you say socialist, what you hope to avoid? Sure. Well, first of all, when you look at the military and you read the Constitution, it is clear that the Constitution gives the federal government certain powers um, exclusively, controlling immigration, defending our country from foreign aggression. So the, the general welfare clause in the Constitution has been applied to many areas that I don't think it was originally intended to be applied to. But if you look at Medicare and Medicaid and you look at the federalization of our health care system. And if you look at 
other programs, it is clear that the economy is being run by a central government as opposed to the private sector. The means of production are controlled by the government, and that is the definition of socialism. What message do you hear as a member of Congress from the Black Lives Matter movement? I I hear a few messages, and and I have to tell you, I think there are messages that are really important for us to hear and to take to heart and to act on. And, And there is clearly racism in this country in various forms. There are some Uh, and I consider this a a small percentage of the population, but you have some white supremacists who are just knuckleheads, and and we absolutely condemn white supremacy, and we condemn any form of racial hatred in in this country. But then there is also an institutional racism that exists that uh, we need to address, and and we need to make sure that we are providing Uh, equal opportunities, not equal outcomes, but equal opportunities for all Americans. That I hear uh, loud and clear. Some of the other issues, I think, are really misguided. I I have been in law enforcement for 25 years. I love the police. They are doing their very best to protect us. Are there some bad police officers? Yes. Are there an overwhelming percentage of the police officers who risk their lives? on a daily basis to make sure that citizens are protected, absolutely. And whether it is an intended message or an unintended message, I think we've got to clarify and and, uh, make sure that we understand the importance of police and that we don't all pray to this defund police message that, that is out there. I wonder if I might run a meme by you, Congressman Buck. This is in response to the bad apples argument. Uh, No one would say about airline pilots that the vast majority are good and there are a few bad apples. Uh, We we, we wouldn't accept that uh, in a condition where our lives were at stake. Um, Is that metaphor apt to law enforcement, do you think? No, I don't think it's apt. I think it's ridiculous. I think that when you look at, um, obviously, airline pilots are trained and, and sometimes in stressful situations, but they are not risking their lives on a daily basis. They aren't having people pull guns, aim those guns at them, and fire guns at them. And I think when I say we have bad apples, we have people who lose their temper, law enforcement, who don't react appropriately under stress, and they need to be weeded out. But the vast majority of police officers are great police officers, and I don't think it's an appropriate comparison. In speaking to the convention Monday, President Trump renewed his claims that mail-in ballots lead to fraud. He warned of a rigged election. You know, Ken Buck, Colorado has had vote-by-mail for years with little evidence of fraud. You've been elected this way. Why shouldn't people be able to vote at home, especially during a pandemic? I have no problem with mail-in ballots. I don't have a problem with the Colorado system. I don't see widespread fraud, and I think it's Uh, appropriate to uh, have mail-in ballots, but it's really a state-by-state, county-by-county issue. Um, I I think it's a mistake for the federal government to run elections, and and that has been my problem with the bills that have been passed by Congress mandating mail-in ballots. If if a state legislature decides to do that, let them put the procedures in place that protect the integrity of the election 
but don't have the federal government step in and start running elections. It's, it's inappropriate, inefficient, and I think it, it could very well lead to bad practices down the road. Why don't you think we hear that kind of um, even-handedness about mail-in ballots from the president? I mean, he's really demonized them. Yeah, I, I, look, I think that the president um, uh, has been hurt by the uh, investigation, uh, the, the wrongful investigation, the fraudulent investigation run by the upper echelon of the FBI. And I think that uh, makes this president somewhat paranoid about uh, a free and fair election. And I, I understand the other side. You know, I, I sit on an airplane and I had a, a woman ask me yesterday on, on the airplane on my way back from Charlotte, if the president loses, do I think there will be a coup? Do I think the president will hold on to power? I don't know where this nonsense comes from. It, it, it's unbelievable to me that that people you know, are that afraid of our system breaking down, that there are that many people in our system that would allow uh, a fraudulent elections or a coup or other conduct that is just, uh, you know, things that haven't occurred in the past and that, that won't occur. Of course, the White House press secretary, uh, Kayleigh McEnany, at one point said during a briefing, we will see what happens before accepting the results of the election. So I think there are some who would say that the administration has planted that seed. Well, I mean, you, you have to be a little bit off in your thinking if you think that uh, we'll see what happens means we'll engage in a lawsuit or we will we will have people that are you know, on the ground making sure that an election is fair, if you think that the president is going to say, I don't accept the results of this election, I'm declaring myself president for life, that, that, that's a huge stretch from what the press secretary said. And I think that one of the ways to motivate voters on both sides is to create this idea the other side may cheat. So it's even more important that we all get out to vote so that there is this cushion and we win the election uh, by such overwhelming numbers that uh, even if they cheat, they, they can't steal this from us. Listen, fires are raging in Colorado. There is a broad scientific consensus that climate change is a culprit and that humans have a role in that climate change. I'll note that the GOP is not adopting a new platform this year, but the 2016 platform really only mentions climate change in ways that uh, dismiss its importance compared to other issues. Should the GOP have a different outlook on climate change, given what you're seeing in Colorado's high country? Ryan, I, I got to tell you, I love you. I, I know when you say there is broad scientific consensus that that means that you and I are going to disagree about something, because um, I also think there is broad uh, scientific consensus that when you don't remove timber and you don't remove brush and there is a lightning strike, you're going to have a big fire. And we have seen a lot of beetle kill in this area. And there is broad scientific consensus that that beetle kill is related to the age of the trees that, that have not been logged. So I, I question whether your, your science is related to drought or your science is related to increased temperatures. I appreciate that you demand some precision from me. So, so I'll be clear that uh, in this respect, I'm talking about 
hotter temperatures, about drier conditions, and thus longer fire seasons related to climate change. Um, Does any of that make you think that the GOP should be a leader when it comes to stemming human-caused climate change? I think the GOP uh, should be and is a leader in producing safe, clean energy and reducing carbon emissions uh, in this country. Um, I think that the GOP, uh, you know, the EPA was formed under a Republican president. The Republicans uh, have long uh, held a very strong value in conservation, dating back to Teddy Roosevelt. And Cory Gardner has offered a bill to upgrade national parks and, and national monuments in this country, the Great American Outdoors Act. And I believe that uh, Republicans do care very much and very deeply about our environment. We disagree about the nature and extent of climate change, but I don't think that, that one side or the other can thump their chest and say the other team is a bunch of knuckle draggers because they don't agree with us. Uh, we all want clean air, clean water, clean land, and we all work in, in our ways to achieve that. That is Congressman Ken Buck, who represents Colorado's 4th District. He is also state Republican Party chair, and Buck himself is up for re-election. He faces Democrat Isaac Ike McCorkle. The counties surrounding Denver have seen a surge of new residents in recent years, and they're changing the once reliably red political landscape. CPR's Andrew Kenny visited southern Arapahoe County, where State House Republicans hope to survive the blue wave that looms against President Trump in Colorado. Greg Mayers thinks the president has damaged the country. He is no different than George Wallace was or McCarthy was in the 50s. He's standing outside his garage in a Littleton neighborhood where 60s ranches line shady streets with skinny sidewalks. That's what he's running on. He's running on white supremacy. He's running on racism. He's running on scaring white people, um, anti-immigrant. Uh, he's doing anything to get reelected. Clearly, he will not be voting for President Donald Trump. But here's the thing. Greg Mayers is exactly the kind of voter that local Republican candidates are looking for in suburban districts like this one. Mayers likes to split tickets. So even after he votes against Trump at the top of the ballot, he actually wants to vote for Republicans in lower races because he likes it when there are two parties in power. I would love to see a mixed, either uh, either the House or the Senate, I don't frankly care which. Um, one party controls one, one party controls the other. Um, so you actually have to do some kind of compromise and some kind of agreement. That idea of balance is central to how state House Republicans are campaigning in competitive Colorado districts. Hi, I'm Richard Champion. I live down at the end of the street. Richard Champion was recently appointed to represent this district in the state house. Uh, I'm I'm your representative. He's a supporter of the president, but as he walked the neighborhood on a recent Saturday morning, he stayed relentlessly focused on state and local issues. And 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 because I'm I'm the uh, incumbent, I've been down there. I've been down at the state house and seen the 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 interesting things that go on down at the state house. And right now. Right now, we need balance. We don't have any balance. Colorado Republicans know that Trump is unpopular with many suburban voters. But Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert says there are enough split-ticket voters to help his party in the closely divided state Senate. And we take some confidence that they've been consistent in, in telling us that regardless of what their opinion, favorable or unfavorable of the president or the U.S. Senate race, when we get down to the state government, they 
do not want, they don't prefer one-party control. This strategy has worked in the past. Back in 2016, this Littleton and Centennial district swung for Hillary Clinton. And yet, at the same time, they still elected a Republican state representative and a state senator by solid margins. But 2018 was a different story, according to County GOP Chair Dorothy Gottlieb. Before the 2018 election, Republicans held all of the five major municipal roles in Arapahoe County government, from clerk and recorder to sheriff and so on. And that year, Republicans lost every race except the uncontested assessor position. A local Republican House member did hold on to her seat, but in two years, she'd seen her margin of victory shrink from 8,000 votes to just 374. Republicans are hoping that 2018 was an anomaly. Some GOP leaders have suggested that voters only lashed out against local politicians because they couldn't actually vote against Trump that year. But voter Justin Propernick might say that's wishful thinking. He used to split tickets. This year, he's voting for Biden, and then for every other Democrat. I've talked to a few people that have said, no, I hope the Republicans get completely wiped out across the board. And I think they deserve that for, for what has happened to the country and, and the way that they've supported the, the president and some of those senators and stuff like that. I hope they lose. All the way down. I don't care at this point. Political scientists have a name for this. It's called negative partisanship. Since the 1980s, hating the other guys has been an increasingly powerful motivator for voters. And researchers say this attitude might make voters more likely to choose a straight ticket. It's happening on both sides. Here's Zach Brent, who plans to vote for Trump for a second time. Oh, absolutely. There's no other choices. Who do you got? You got loud mouth or you got cre- creepy Uncle Joe? <laughs> so if many people have made up their minds up and down the ballot already, what do the undecided voters in the middle want? After talking to plenty of them, many seem to have a common desire, a return to normalcy. Here's Ben Lieberman. My priorities. Yeah, I'm not a Trump fan. How about putting it that way? For Lieberman, normal means returning to a more polite, kind of bipartisan politics. So priority number one is to stop screaming and yelling at each other. Um, Try to get it back to some semblance of, I may not agree with you, but I'm not going to beat you up. And then from there, move on. A lot of voters have different priorities. This election can feel like an all-or-nothing decision. Many want a new normal, and they'll vote a straight ticket to get it. But in these ultra-close local districts, it's the voters in the middle who may decide whether the two parties have to share power. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a podcast about why black women don't get their green. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Fire danger is high across Colorado. The governor has issued a statewide burning ban, and major wildfires have already scorched more acreage than last year. We've sent just about everything we have out, and we're calling from resources all over the nation. I'm CPR News reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis, and the CPR and KRCC newsrooms are closely following developments. For the latest Colorado wildfire updates, go to CPR.org. Black women are at the crossroads of racism and sexism, and it's reflected in their pay, which is often much lower than a white man's. In fact, August 13th was Black Women's Equal Pay Day, 
the day a black woman must work into the new year to make what a white man made at the end of the previous. To coincide with that, Denver-based journalist Chandra Thomas-Whitfield launched her new podcast, In the Gap, in which she proclaims that black women's livelihoods matter. Here's an excerpt of the first episode, which features an engineer and CU Boulder graduate named Aja. She describes an interaction with a co-worker. We were out at lunch, and it was just me and him, and we were just talking about work and joking around. And, um, you know, I think it just leisurely came out like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just making this amount and you know and I was like oh that's neat like you know we did the same job the same exact job to be specific and you know we sat right next to each other we both took calls and solved trouble tickets and so it's like huh what did he say he said he made a certain amount of money Mm -hmm. and it was how was how did that compare to what you were making I was 40 to 45,000 less than that number so I was very um immediately shocked that, you know, I was offered so much lower and I was there longer. I had more tenure. So I was immediately confused. But of course, we were at lunch. And so I I tried to just kind of put a smile on my face behind all this pain because I'm like, how in the world am I getting paid a significant amount less than him? An excerpt of the new podcast, In the Gap, How and Why Black Women Aren't Getting Their Green. And host Chandra Thomas-Whitfield joins me in the studio. Welcome to the program. An honor to be here. I know this was a journalistic endeavor, but I wonder how much this project resonated with you personally as a black woman. Oh, it resonated a lot. I I have to admit, even though I tried to keep it upbeat and, um, you know, just kind of light to some degree, uh, there were moments that you kind of almost wanted to choke back. I wanted to choke back tears because of the pain and the the desperation and just kind of the feelings of lack of worth that would always come through in the interviews. And uh, what's funny about it is that I kind of did this as a journalist, like I'm covering this issue. But as I started doing the interviews, I said, I'm probably a victim of this and never thought about it. So I think that's what I was hoping to accomplish with this podcast is to take it out of the anecdotal kind of I just had this personal experience and realize that this is happening across the board. It's systemic and it's rampant and that a lot of women don't realize that so many other women, black women in particular, are having this experience. Why don't we put some numbers to this, Chandra? How does black women's pay stack up? What are the numbers? Well, as you mentioned, uh, black women who work full time make about 62 cents for every dollar that a white non-Hispanic male makes. And also, just to kind of put that in perspective, for black men, that number is 87 cents for every dollar. But for white women, it's about 79 cents. So what's what what statistic really, I think, really bought me on doing this project is that this is about twenty three thousand dollars or so a year. So over the course of a 40 year career, a black woman will lose approximately $946,000. And when you look at that in terms of your life, you think about the homes you need to buy, the the college you need to pay for, uh, food, shelter, and you have to accomplish all of that with $946,000 less. And 
basically only because of your gender and skin color. And, you know, that was a disturbing figure and it really got me fired up. Your new podcast explores the history of this pay gap and ways to close it. Um, Let's start with the history and your guest in the second episode, Jocelyn Fry, who was a deputy assistant to President Obama and a director of policy for former First Lady Michelle Obama. Let's listen. If you look historically, we have treated what we call work differently. We viewed it differently, depending on who's performing it. You know, when we go back historically, men were perceived of as doing, quote unquote, the real work. Women were in the home and certainly doing work and hard work, but it wasn't viewed as, quote unquote, work in the same way. It was devalued. It was what women were supposed to be doing. And black women were really caught in the intersection of that because on the one hand, they certainly were not perceived of as doing the same work as white men. However, there was a view that black women coming out of our history of slavery were, quote-unquote, best suited to basically be doing work for white families. They were always viewed as being in service of the status quo that was a prevailing white majority. They were devalued in terms of how people perceived them vis-a-vis white women, what, you know, white women were put up on a pedestal to be revered, but at the same time, they were certainly not respected as doing real work that was compensated to the same level as white men. I think what I learned from this podcast, Chandra, is that that history can become internalized and mm-hmm. black women in the workforce may undervalue themselves, You relay a story in one episode about delivering phone books. What's this story? (laughs) Well, that was our episode called Negotiate, Negotiate, Negotiate. And uh, what, what I uncovered in a lot of my interviews on and off the podcast was that black women often felt that they had not been taught to negotiate. They were never socialized and to, to fight for what they're worth. And then you also have to contend with the fact that we live in a society that sends the message daily. You're not beautiful. You're not smart. You're not valuable. You're not intelligent. And so it can become an issue where, A, you need to learn how to negotiate, but you also need to think about how you're internalizing those messages. So to tell you the crazy story, and I, and I, I always tell it, I said I'm dating myself because I'm like, phone books? <laughs> it's like not phonebooks.com, but no, uh, I did not understand negotiating. I was offered a job and I to actually get into television, believe it or not, I had to take a pay cut, which I wasn't making that much money before either. So I, instead of just negotiating more money, I took the job and then came up with these harebrained ideas to make extra money. And so here I was a television producer and then I changed clothes and, and for like a week or something, I went out for some paltry amount of money attempting to deliver phone books to businesses. And uh, I didn't figure out how heavy they are. (laughs) And the fact that most people who were doing this did it as a group. So one person was driving, one person was delivering. And uh, it was pretty hilarious. And I said, I said, this sounds like a bad movie. Uh, Producer by day. day. (laughs) (laughs) The phone book book deliverer by night, uh, you know, kind of a thing. So it was just a lesson. And, you know, in that episode, we have a wonderful woman named Valerie Burton. 
And she just talks about how we have to, uh, we actually have to advocate. But I will say this one thing. Yeah. The studies show that when black candidates actually negotiate, it is actually often perceived negatively because of pre-existing stereotypes and beliefs mm. that the hirers have. So you can just, it's not just as simple as negotiating because if someone kind of feels like, oh, the audacity of her asking for more money. And that's something that we have to overcome is the belief that we're not worth the money that we're asking for. So it's internal and external. But I think there are lessons here as well for the interviewer to yes. check their own biases. Exactly. As well. And that's and that's what we brought up in this podcast, just to say, are you going in with that attitude? OK, so let's hear a little bit from entrepreneur and motivational speaker Valerie Burton yes. in this episode. Negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. <laughs> First of all, giving yourself permission to negotiate, recognizing that Everything is negotiable. Just because something is presented does not mean that that's the last offer. In fact, it is the starting point. And so when we look at things in that way, we begin to see that there are other possibilities. But I think even before that, as women in particular, and as African-American women, it's important to step back and see what your fears are. Mm. around why you have not negotiated in the past, around why you may not even feel the right to negotiate. It's often around our sense of value and worth. One of the last episodes mm -hmm. is about labor unions and yes. their connection to the civil rights movements. I, I learned a lot from this. You start with a longtime barista, Yes. And, and tell her At, at DIA, by the way. At DIA. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of local figures in this podcast. Yes, a lot. In the gap. And uh, from that episode, I'd also like to listen to a labor expert at Wayne State University, Gail Hamilton. Yes. It's important to just note that although unions may have traditionally back in the mid 20th century, maybe weren't as inclusive with black workers, Today, they are moving into the 60s. They were involved in the civil rights movement. And I, I think it's important just to note that labor rights, civil rights, and women's rights, all three of those movements are um, instrumental and they work together to really move Black women forward. So it's important to just note that. And then today, looking at that, so a lot of labor organizations have focus on fairer. The, I think it's important just to note that the contracts that are negotiated are to provide not just wage you know, increases or benefit increases. The purpose of a union contract is to provide also dignity at your job, to provide a fairer workplace, to mm -hmm. provide workers with a voice and to provide a much more humane workplace. We see that you know, happening now where unions are stepping up, fighting for their workers' safety in the workplace, especially with this COVID disease that's running rampant in certain workplaces. And Hamilton mentioned COVID there. Do you fear, Chandra, that in the long term, the pandemic, which has been so disastrous economically, will exacerbate the pay gap? 
It already has, Ryan. Um, I actually wrote a piece, and this podcast is sponsored, uh, was supported by In These Times Magazine, which is a Chicago-based, very labor-focused magazine. And uh, I wrote about the fact that black women will be one of the highest casualties in the coronavirus and already have. They, uh, Black women are disproportionately represented in, in service jobs, which have been these frontline workers, which also attributes to the high rates of black women or black people uh, contracting it. You can't you can't check out groceries remotely. So, I mean, you know, those types of positions, I mean, we're fortunate if we can work remotely, but a lot of these frontline positions, not so much. And also, um, you know, when you talk about this, about the labor unions, which was which was the focus of that um, soundbite, uh, I learned a lot about that myself. And uh, again, In These Times magazine is very focused on labor issues. And I would say the one thing I learned is the role that labor unions have played in making a safer workplace for all of us and the fact that black women have been instrumental in that. And what we learn ultimately is that this is an extension of systemic racism and that is going to take systemic change to address that. And unions have been historically a part of that process. We should also point to the disparity in health outcomes as well for people of color with COVID-19. So the disproportionality is on both the health and the economic side. Absolutely. And obviously, if you're sick, you can't work. And so that's going to be a challenge. Thank you so much for sharing this podcast with us. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to say that it's called In the Gap and it is available on all the major platforms, uh, you know, Apple podcast, Apple podcast, wherever Google. you get your yeah, podcast, wherever you listen said. to podcasts. And so I, but I also found it helpful if you uh Googled it with my name, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. I was going to say all that. You did it for oh, me, Chandra. Sorry. That I didn't is know. <laughs> Denver journalist Chandra Thomas Whitfield, the host of In the Gap, a podcast about how and why black women aren't getting their green. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. He has explored the roots of folk music for years. Now Jamie Stone is plugging in. The Longmont musician and composer puts down his banjo and plays a synthesizer on his new album, Awake. And he delves into the grief of losing his brother to a drug overdose. Jamie, welcome back to the program. Really good to be here. I'm really sorry about your brother. We're going to talk about his memory, but just a little background on you first. In your previous projects, you dug into the work of the famed folklorist Alan Lomax. I'd like to know what what it is like to go from unplugged to plugged in. You know, mostly I think of musicians doing the opposite trajectory. <laughs> totally. Um, it was really refreshing. Um, I feel like I finally caught up with my own 
listening proclivities and um, was able to just explore so many new sounds and integrate things that I've always loved. But for the most part, I wanted to put down the acoustic palette and find some new sonic lands to explore. It didn't feel like cheating on folk music? No, Okay. Not so much. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, a number of the songs on the album reflect on the sudden death of your brother, Michael, a well-known Buddhist meditation and yoga teacher. And and so why don't we hear a bit of the title song, Awake, Awake. The trees are still ringing, I'm ringing your phone. All of these boys have to go alone. You lost, I'm lost, we're all the same. You say, I say, we say his name. A light, a light, a life is made. He's here, he's gone, don't let it fade. The salt dissolves, your eyes are clear. My hands, your hands, a single sphere. Awake, awake, the light has come. Unake, unake, the past is numb. The phrasing in that is so lovely. And awake can take on so many meanings. I mean, not being asleep, awake of a boat, or awake in a funereal context. What does that word mean to you? And what does this song mean to you? Yeah, it evokes all those things. You know, I was thinking both about how much my brother left in his wake and what it was like to live my own life in in the wake of um, his passing. Um, But also just thinking about, you know, a lifespan that got extinguished too quickly, you know, I was thinking about how to be more awake in my own life and to live my own life as fully as I can. A light, a light, a life is made. He's here, he's gone, don't let it fade. The salt dissolves, your eyes are clear. My hands, your hands, a single sphere. Awake, awake, the light has come. An ache, an ache, the past is numb. You produced a video for this song, which shows a lot of family photos of the two of you. And you use the words, these boys. Were you referring to your relationship with him there? I was referring to a few things. Um, Yeah, right after he passed away, um, my dad digitized all of the old family photos. And he was a photographer when we grew up. Um, And so there's so many beautiful, beautiful photos and all these old Super 8 films, some of which I hadn't ever seen Um, And yeah, so I was thinking a lot and really immersed in the visual world of, you know, the old stories and uh, visuals of me and him together. And then my brother also had four boys. um, And um, I was, you know, thinking a lot about their life without their dad. I can imagine being really grateful for lots of images of someone who has passed. I can also imagine how each one must hurt a little bit, too. Of course, yeah. But I mean... You know, it's there's so many ways to remember people. And, and in some ways, I'm really appreciating, especially being far from the rest of my family and his family, having ways to reconnect and to remember him and to bring him back. The song ends with a voicemail ever so faintly mixed in. We'll listen close. Tell me about this voicemail from Michael. Yeah, it was the last one he left me um, the morning he passed away. Um, And, you know, he showed no signs of 
anything being unusual about that day. You know, he was checking in and let's talk later and let's talk on the weekend. And um, and I, I kept it, um, of course. And then as we were mixing the song, I felt like I wanted to bring it in because every time I heard it, it really gave me chills and sort of brought me into this memory feeling experience of him that I wanted to be able to share a snippet of. The Longmont musician Jamie Stone is my guest. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And how was it to integrate a synthesizer? It was amazing. You know, I decided uh, from the outset that I would set the banjo down almost completely on this record. And I mostly wrote on instruments that I don't really play. Um, And I got a little synthesizer called an OP-1. That's the size of your forearm. Okay. Tiny little thing. Um, And it's a drum machine and a synth and a sampler. And so... What I would often do would I would take ideas, you know, either that I would sing or play in or sometimes that I would sample from the recording itself, and then I could manipulate it. I could pitch it up and down like a hip-hop musician might do, and then I could, you know, play pieces of these found sounds and created sounds, and it allowed me to find a way into the music um, that was just so different and so refreshing. The options, though, are mind-boggling. I mean, it's it's endless, endless, yeah. And yeah. I and and especially at first, I had no idea what I was doing. So I would just press some buttons, and 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 next thing you know, it would spit out this whole strange version of what I had played into it in the first place. And it would often get me really inspired to start writing. Well, I want to hear a bit of another song at this point. This is "Wait for Heaven." You settle up and you settle down. This ain't a bend you can see around. Walk on water and almost drown Now watch yourself with that thorny crown Out in the distance it's plain as song You wait for heaven, you wait too long I'm a plant, nothing this season Bone tired, no reason I'm always loath to compare artists to other artists, but there's a real Paul Simon vibe Mm. sometimes on this record. Is that a compliment? That's a compliment. Oh Oh my God, such a compliment. I mean it as well. Um, He's one of my favorite musicians ever. And in a way, actually, I learned about making records from Paul Simon records. Uh, Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints in particular are such iconic records, but also so you know, deeply conceptual and the way that he made music where he really used his own voice and and yet uh, was able to sort of pull in all these other cultures and ideas um, and, and places into his sound it was a big influence on me. How was it to sing on this record? Because I don't associate you with vocals on your previous albums. Yeah, I sang a little bit on my last record, but I've never sung, you know, lead, especially lead. on a whole record. Yeah. Um, it was an amazing process and a major growing process. And I gave myself a few years to make this record. I really took my time. Um, I studied and practiced. And, uh, you know, there's no better laboratory than making a record in a lot of ways because um, your, you know, musicianship is under a microscope. And so I was able to use the record in a way as a a great, uh, you know, chemistry project to learn about how my voice works and interacts with all these other instruments and sounds and really experiment. How much um, is making an album an act of creation versus destruction? And, And I guess what I mean by that is 
there are moments for some artists I know where they've created something and they they just realize it's not working. They've got to throw stuff out. They've got to start over. How much destruction was in this process? Yeah, that's so important. I mean, I, I feel like if you create something, then you also have the power to destroy it uh, in the best way and renew it, you know, like a, a, a well... Um, a, a well-planned forest fire, you know, um, and and so there were times where I would play, a, you know, a, a phrase or sing something, and it would sound kind of folky, and I would think that's really cool. But you know, what if I turn that upside down? What if I played it on a new instrument? What if I completely recontextualized some aspect of it, and then it comes out brand new again? You do a kind of stargazing in the track "Mouth the Words." Strike a spark Wrap your arms around the dark Stars align, Saturn turns Redesign everything you ever learned So keep it pinned Design everything you ever learned. That feels like almost the thesis of this record, Jamie Stone. What's going on in this song? I was thinking about this thing called Saturn Returns. And um, for those that don't know, uh, this is an idea um, in astrology that, you know, every 30 years, your um, Saturn is where it was uh, in your constellation when you were born. And it's usually a great time of reckoning and renewal, which are very much the themes of this record. So I was just thinking about the ways um, we can let go of things that aren't working and kind of remake our life. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Longmont musician and songwriter Jamie Stone. His new album, Awake, comes out later this week. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Wonder about my brother I wonder where he's gone Trouble